Dr. Tatiana Hitchin is an undifferentiated junior doctor with a background in philosophy and law. Her chemist father fostered a delight in making things go bang. Early experiments, including potassium in the bath. <laughs> She's just nodding. Mm, yes, that's exactly what happened. She's quietly envious of anyone, even dermatologists, who get to use liquid nitrogen in the course of their work. Her only outlet for this at the moment is putting brockers in boiling water. I give you Tatiana. I feel extremely embarrassed speaking here tonight because, as the introduction has just explained, I don't actually have a science degree. I have an arts degree, a law degree, and a doctor of medicine. So I'm not quite sure how qualified that makes me to speak tonight. <laughs> but I do love science, so yay science. So we are here in the Inner North, and since we are here in Brunswick, I thought it was important that my topic tonight be eminently relevant. Infectious diseases, vaccination, or the lack thereof, craft beer, fine wine, kombucha, raw dairy products, and a mighty beard. Who could bring together all of these great pursuits of the Brunswick hipster? Why, it's Louis Pasteur. A man who made multiple major contributions to microbiology and public health, and whose work played a significant role in reducing the mortality that is perhaps sometimes taken for granted. Pasteur was born in 1822. He studied science at Dijon before continuing his studies in chemistry and physics at the École Normale Supérieure in Paris. By 1848, he was professor of chemistry at the University of Strasbourg. Shortly after, he met his future wife, and they had five children, three of whom, unfortunately, but as was typical in those days, died of typhoid. He returned to Paris in 1857, and after an unpopular period of attempted university reforms, during which he issued edicts in support of eating mutton stew, and he also banned smoking, which suggests that he was public health-minded even then, his scientific research highlighted the importance of infectious diseases and public health, and to that end, he ultimately established the Pasteur Institute in 1887. The diversity and impact of his life's work has surely vindicated what sounds like a spectacularly egotistical decision. <laughs> his initial research was in chemistry, and he is a founder of stereochemistry, which looks at how molecules are arranged in three-dimensional space. One of his observations was that molecules can have two forms, or enantiomers, which present as mirror images and which polarize light differently. This property is called chirality. Amino acids in living organisms, for example, are always left-handed. Left-handed and right-handed versions may also have very different effects. Thalidomide, for example, has a reasonably benign form but it also has a notoriously teratogenic form and causes terrible birth defects. It's hard also to have one without the other in the body, so any attempt to have the, the, the benign form of thalidomide generally doesn't work. Less troublingly, there are two enantiomers of the same chemical which can give rise to entirely different smells. So there's a chemical that in the left-handed version, it smells like caraway, and in the other version, it smells like spearmint. So Pasteur added to our understanding that a chemical is more than just its formula and that structure is incredibly important. 
We see this particularly today in the identification of receptors and targets, which is fundamental to molecular biology and a great deal of modern medicine. But enough of the chemistry, let's get on to the life sciences. In the 19th century, there was an ongoing debate regarding the origin of infectious diseases, a popular theory which can be traced back to at least as far as Aristotle, so incredibly modern, was spontaneous generation. As the name suggests, organisms and diseases spontaneously arise from various inanimate and unrelated substances. Maggots arise from dead flesh, purely out of the dead flesh. It's got absolutely nothing to do with flies laying eggs in carcasses. Pasteur wasn't convinced by this. The mid to late 19th century was something of a hotbed for scientists overturning this spontaneous generation theory, and Pasteur was joining Ignaz Semmelweis, John Snow, Robert Koch, and many others who have also been presented at the Boris Story in a demonstration that germs were actually responsible for disease. In 1859, he set up a very elegant experiment. He took meat broth, which is an excellent culture medium, boiled it in specially shaped flasks so that whatever was vaporized would float down a swan-shaped neck away from the broth. Some of these flasks were then left to sit, and the broth stayed nice and clean. Some of the flasks were opened up to the air, and the broth was then exposed to the air and grew all sorts of yucky, disgusting things, the sort of which you might find in your sink at home. Some of the flasks were then tilted to reintroduce whatever had been initially vaporized and brought back into the broth, and these also bloomed with life. So Pasteur observed two things from this, which ultimately relate to the spoilage of food and drink. One, that air and water and so on contain microbes which can contaminate other materials. Two, these microbes can produce substances that alter the integrity of organic matter. This is the process behind rotting, putrefaction, but also, as we all know and love, fermentation. Yeah. For example, certain bacteria will produce substance called butyric acid. This is a disaster in some cases, as it forms the distinctive smell of vomit. It's also a component of Hershey's chocolate. <laughs> Bacterial production of butyric acid is more seriously also very important for making cheeses and kombucha. And fermentation generally underpins all of the important things in life, like beer, chocolate, and sourdough bread. Pasteur made practical progress, too, when he discovered that fermentation could be stopped by introducing oxygen. From this, he inferred that organisms responsible for fermentation hated oxygen. That is, they were obligate anaerobes. What we see now is an understanding of this process of fermentation, but also a means of controlling it. So, staying on the topic of food production and quality control, Pasteur's next great work was one of immense relevance to many in this room, as I can see tonight, and that's alcohol. In the 1860s, he applied his ideas to the very, very serious problem of diseases that were affecting wine production. Indeed, it was so serious that Emperor Napoleon III actually requested that Pasteur investigate. So Pasteur already knew that boiling could neutralize the contaminants like bacteria. He reasoned that bacteria were also responsible for ruining good wine. But if heat could be applied, then these nasty bacteria could be eradicated and the wine would be saved. Boiling wine merrily for hours would no doubt make it nice and clean, but probably not so worth drinking. 
Pasteur devised a protocol for heating wine to between 55 and 60 degrees Celsius, a point at which all the yucky bacteria would die off, but the lovely pleasurable aromas and flavors of wine would remain. The same, he also found, ultimately, was true for beer and for milk. In 1865, this work formed the basis of a patent, and the process of heating foodstuffs to kill bacterial contaminants ultimately became eponymously known as pasteurization. Today, for example, certain unpasteurized dairy products may not be sold for human consumption because of the threat to public health should that milk be contaminated with a dazzling array of potentially lethal bacteria. Pasteurization also helps to keep your milk fresh for longer, reducing the likelihood of that awful moment when you realize you just poured cottage cheese into your coffee. <laughs> a further aspect of Pasteur's applied knowledge of pathogens as a cause of disease was to avoid contamination. He propounded the process of boiling in order to sterilize substances, which ultimately gave rise to the autoclave. This means we now have sterile tools, and surgery is no longer a disgusting game of Russian roulette. <laughs> Which disease will I catch from the retractor today? <laughs> Pasteur also collaborated with the great English physician Joseph Lister in the use of chemicals such as boric acid as antiseptics, which further reduced post-operative infections. Now, our final major topic for Pasteur and for tonight. It was the 18th century physician Edward Jenner who worked out that cowpox could be used to inoculate people and provoke an immune response that would protect them against smallpox, quite a devastating disease. And he thereby devised the method of vaccination. Pasteur took his understanding that microbes cause disease and applied it to improving Jenner's technique to develop vaccines. While studying chicken cholera, confusingly not related to human cholera, Pasteur injected bacterial cultures that were produced over many bacterial generations into chickens. The birds became ill, but not fatally so. The bacteria from the cultures had been attenuated. It wouldn't cause disease, but the treated chickens who were subsequently exposed to normal chicken cholera didn't ail either. Pasteur then went on to work on anthrax. He realized that it would be possible to attenuate the organism responsible for anthrax, another bacterium, through processes involving oxidation. So while Jenner used a related similar organism to initiate immunity, Pasteur used the actual organism responsible for the disease he was trying to combat, artificially weakened it, and then introduced it into healthy specimens. Thanks to Pasteur, usable vaccines against chicken cholera and anthrax soon became available. This work revolutionized agriculture. It made it a much more viable business if one could prevent the decimation of your livestock. Pasteur's work is also the basis for many modern vaccines today, including the measles vaccine, to which Brunswick has demonstrated a very sketchy commitment to <laughs> early this year. On the subject of viruses, Pasteur had showed that vaccination worked beautifully with bacterial infections, but would it work for others? Viruses weren't actually specifically identified until some years later, but in, so around about the 1890s. But Pasteur knew that something that was very, very small, couldn't be seen under the microscope, was also responsible for some diseases. He was particularly focused on rabies. Now, for those of you not familiar with rabies, 
It's transmitted by saliva, and once it gets into the body, it travels via the peripheral nerves up into the central nervous system and into the brain, taking a variable length of time to get there. Once it gets there, it causes a horrendous encephalitis with symptoms ranging from careers, hydrophobia, confusion, and coma, and death is almost certainly inevitable within a few days after those symptoms arise. So Pasteur used a method that was very similar to that which he used in developing the chicken cholera vaccine. He started off using dogs, not particularly successfully, and it was also pretty ridiculous in hindsight to have a rabid dog in your laboratory, even taking into account the fact that occupational health and safety was pretty lax in those days. So what would be less dangerous than a rabid dog? Well, rabid rabbits. Pasteur took nervous tissue from infected bunnies, desiccated that tissue until it was inactivated, and then introduced it into the unaffected rabbits. Subsequently, those rabbits were exposed to the normal live virus, and they didn't get ill. More significantly, he very soon went on to use that vaccine to vaccinate a young boy who had been bitten by a rabid dog. And indeed, this is one of the remarkable things about the rabies vaccine, insofar as if you give it at the right time, if you give it early enough after you've been bitten by said rabid animal, you can actually use that vaccine to prevent the illness from even after that act of transmission. So you can use it as a treatment as well as a preventative. So Pasteur's method here resulted in a different sort of vaccine to that which he'd used against chicken cholera, he had effectively created an inactivated vaccine, i.e. it was dead, rather than a, a live attenuated vaccine. And inactivated vaccines are today very useful for people who have compromised immune systems. And if you gave them an attenuated live vaccine, there's a risk that they might actually get sick from that vaccine, but they won't from the inactivated vaccine. So in terms of his legacy, well, it has as is almost always the case since emerged that Pasteur probably exaggerated some of his work, and he was also heavily reliant, if not sort of a bit thievery, of the work of others. But even taking this into account, he made major contributions to science and public health. Our food and drink is now much safer, and it's better quality. Farmers, winemakers, and so on can reliably make a living. Pasteur's work in germ theory and immunization remains instrumental in halting the spread of infectious diseases and the horrible morbidity and mortality that they bring. He demonstrated a commitment to the notion of rational causation, that people get ill because of pathogens and not through evil miasmas or moral turpitude. And this itself then permits targeted cures. He was an adherent of the scientific method and of the process of controlled experiments. And what I like about Pasteur is that he was a very practical scientist. He saw problems and he solved them through the application of theoretical knowledge. His eponymous institute has gone on to produce 10 Nobel laureates and continues excellent work in studying infectious diseases and proposing other means that will ensure public health. Pasteur's work and legacy is, I would argue, preeminent, and that is why he is one of my scientific heroes.